This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. and welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. In today's show, we're talking to photographer and Dunedin School of Art Head of Programmes, Alicia Bailey. But first, here's DPAG Society Council member Ross Curry with an update on the Dunedin arts scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, what's on at DPAG this month? Well, the realm of Rako shows until November the 12th, and the magic of the natural world has been a focus and inspiration for artists. And this show draws such works from the permanent collection. Society members will be particularly interested to see recent acquisitions from society funds, including works by Fiona Paddington and Rita Angus. So get down to the gallery and see those very special works from the collection. And I think, Ross, there's another treat coming up at DPAG. Certainly is. Coming in December is the eagerly awaited Marilyn Wed retrospective, Folded in the Hills. Now, society members will be receiving an invitation for the opening and the preview at 5.30 on December the 8th. So please save the date in your diaries. Indeed. What's showing at the dealer galleries? Well, at Gallery de Novo, Nashiko Shulam is showing in Dunedin for the first time her unique, whimsical ceramic busts. But you need to get there soon, as this ends on November the 2nd. At Olga Gallery in Murray Place, Dunedin-based artist Jay Hutchinson's show Blind Trash shows through November. Jay works with textiles and explores urban erosion and the waste and decay of capitalism. One of our former guests on Sightlines, Rachel Hope Allen, has a photography show coming up at FE29. Can you tell us about that, Ross? Yes, Rachel has a dark and compelling photography show called Just Like the Movies and is from the 4th to the 27th of November at FE29. It's been described as evoking something between a holiday gone wrong and the kind of disaster tourism in which the artist herself would never engage. Sounds strangely compelling and intriguing. Um, We've got some interesting group shows coming up too. Tell us about the Otago Art Society Gallery. The Dunedin Artists Community Group, 30 Women, has its first group exhibition at the Otago Art Society Gallery in the railway station. The diversity of this show is reflective of the wide range of cultures in the group, and this continues until November the 12th. It's been a long-anticipated exhibition, that one. And indeed, November is always a big month at the School of Art. What's showing down in Riego Street? Well, the public gallery at the Dunedin School of Art has a night class exhibition until November the 4th. And a group of students from the night classes are also running a separate exhibition at the Athenaeum just off the octagon. It's called Light and Life. And it runs from the 8th to the 29th of November. Open every day, 10 till 3. And tell me, the must-see site show that must be coming up soon as well. Yes, this is the show where the final year students exhibit and it opens from November the 17th until the 21st. Many of the works are on sale. The gallery is open Monday to Friday from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock at 19 Rego Street. Mustn't miss that one. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for our feature item. This month on Sightlines, we're talking to a woman of many hats. 
Alicia Bailey is the Head of Programs, Art and Design Diplomas and Certificates at the Otago Polytechnic Te Pukinga, a role that sees her overseeing a total of seven programs as part of the art school's leadership team. But she's also been a lecturer at Te Pukinga, a commercial photographer who married a fellow photographer and produced three children, and she's recently started a master's. Somehow, in between all of the above, she's also continued to produce fantastic and inspiring photographs, most recently a series entitled My Mother's Garden. Alicia, I'm exhausted just thinking about it all. Did you always want to be a photographer? Oh, kia ora, Sally. No, is the quick answer to that one. I actually always wanted to be a teacher, and I always enjoyed photography as a hobby. And I, even as a young child, would pick up a camera. One of my earliest memories of photographing as a child is that my mother would always give us a disposable camera to use when we go on holiday. Oh, I remember those. Nice. Yeah, and being the very organised even child that I was, I would sit down and sort of count out how many frames I had and how many I would take a day over the holiday and things I might want to photograph. So I enjoyed photography, but I didn't see it as an end goal vocation for me. Mm. And I sort of found my way there. You mentioned earlier that I married fellow photographer and that's probably the the main way that I made it there. I took a very windy journey. I did sort of at high school, I didn't really take any art subjects. I was really focused on did history, a lot of history. I did I did do a wee bit of drama, but I didn't take art as a full subject and I left high school when I was 16 and I just wasn't Quite The system didn't fit me, didn't quite fit how I worked, and I didn't want to leave education, and so I actually started studying hairdressing at um, what was called the Headquarters Polytech at that time. And so I studied hairdressing there for about a year, went into an apprenticeship, and that didn't quite fit, and then I went back to study and did um, broadcast journalism, and again, really enjoyed the study, but just didn't quite fit to go into the industry. And after I left there, I did some graphic advertising design. Um, I went to university and did psychology and anthropology and social work. So I journeyed around a lot and nothing, yeah, nothing stuck. Just nothing stuck. Yeah. Really enjoyed the education journey, um, but just couldn't quite, couldn't quite see where to go with it until I found photography. Um, And that finally stuck. Exactly. So I think you went off and did diplomas together, very romantically. We did, (laughs) yeah, very romantic. I'm not sure that's how I would describe how it went at the time. (laughs) (laughs) We definitely approach our photography in quite different ways. So we studied the two diplomas, one in 2010 and one in 2011. Uh, My husband is really technically minded and he picked that stuff up really quickly, which was very frustrating for me because I didn't so much. I can see how that would be very irritating. Very irritating, but he was very supportive and um, yeah, we made our way made our way through that study. And I think you liked art school so much that you told one of your lecturers that you'd be back. I did, yeah. So that study was with Araki Politech and my lecturer there, Frank Pollack, who's actually still one of my colleagues now, I keep saying to him through the whole time I was studying, you know, like, I'll be back. I really want to teach. I really enjoy this study. This particular study of program was really important to me because it was that first fit that I found. And so it's always, you know, it will always be quite important to me. Yeah. And is that saying, if you can't do teach, but in fact, in your case, you can both do and teach. 
uh, and we'll come back to that mm. a wee bit later. So your current role, you've had a variety of roles in fact. Um, what? Tell us a wee bit more about your current role. What are you currently doing? Yeah, absolutely. So my current role is as Head of Programs for the Certificate and Diploma Programs across the Art and Design Schools. So it's the first time that any sort of leadership role has spanned across Art and Design. And so it's a really interesting space just to bring those schools together, really important space. And I'm really passionate about the certificate and diploma space as well. I think it's an underrepresented area quite often. People will focus on degree programs, which are obviously really important, but you don't hear so much about the certificate and diploma programs. So it was a really important thing for me to take on. And it wasn't originally pitched as a role in the new leadership structure at the art school and um, our head of college at the time, Federico Fresky. I went and had a conversation with him and said, look, I think this area needs to be represented, yes. especially going into a Tapukinga landscape. And he was really on board, so that's how the role came about. It sounds as if the Polytech's very lucky to have you as a strong advocate for that particular aspect of its programme. But throughout all of this, you've actually continued with your own art, and that's what we want to talk to you about today. It must be very inspiring for you as an artist to work in an art school, but I imagine that finding time to make your own art is sometimes quite a challenge when your role is predominantly an, an administrative one. Yeah, absolutely. It's really difficult. Um, I have three children as well and working full time plus some, it does make it really challenging, but it is inspiring, like you said, and seeing the students coming through and making their work and colleagues making all of their work every time that you see that come through, it really makes you want to go and pick up your own camera or whatever your medium might be and and produce that work. And it's just, yeah, it's incredibly inspiring to work in, in an environment like that. I know that there'll be a lot of people listening that are perhaps people who have themselves once aspired to be an artist on some level, whether it's a hobbyist or whether it's a working artist, and who, for reasons of the trajectory that their life has taken, have not been able to fulfil that wish. You yourself, you've you've said just a moment ago that you've got three children. How do you manage to continue to indulge some little part of yourself in art when you've got this full-time job and this family. Yeah, absolutely. And I just try to find ways that include my family as much as I can. And it might be as simple as, you know, we're going on a road trip and pulling out my phone. I do do quite a lot of photography on my phone now. Pulling out my phone and just making sure that we're taking that time, stopping for those moments, getting the kids really involved, and that's the best way for me. I will say as well that I do have a very understanding family. It's not the first time that I've studied, and yeah, they're just really good at giving me that space to do what I need to do, which is pretty mature for three children. So Very mature and quite unusual, I suspect. In 2021, of course, we all confronted COVID, which created new challenges for everyone. But I think you rose to the challenge of being confined to barracks, as it were, by taking the opportunity to start a new project. Now, tell us about that. Yeah, I did. So the project was called My Mother's Garden. And it largely involved documenting uh, my mother-in-law's garden, actually. And the intention was that it would be sort of a journey throughout her garden and geographically limited to that one place. And it actually began with the title um, and that was, yeah, around it being geographical. I wanted to limit it to that space because I wanted to really highlight, um, you know, one person's space and everything that could be contained within it. So from there, 
doing that project, I just I've always had a particular interest in gardens and flowers. I'm not a gardener, but I love flowers. They have this real sense of comfort and luxury to me, and I just fascinated by them. And also just the sort of idea of how multifaceted a plant is and how many different uses that it can have and how many different communities and cultures and spaces that one plant can sit within. Uh, So that was where it was born from, was that idea. And collaborating with my mother-in-law, with her knowledge of gardening and with my knowledge of what I wanted to do aesthetically. And we were teaching each other. So it was a really awesome exchange of, of learning in that way. And I mean, ultimately, she has this amazing garden and it's beautiful, quarter of an acre, stunning. And she's super generous with her time and her knowledge. So it just seemed like a, a really great fit for that to be the location. So one of the things that she has a really extensive knowledge of is the history of the plants and in particular the Latin names. And I think you've said that the names were in fact something of an inspiration to you in terms of how this project panned out. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd have these walks around the garden and um, my mother-in-law would be explaining the plants and referring to them in their Latin names. And it became really apparent that one of the reasons that she would do that is because each plant had so many names. And so it'd be really confusing to try and refer to a plant in one way and I might go and try to research in a different with these different names. And so her speaking about them in their, with their formal Latin name just really made me think about, well, what does the name hold and how do those more colloquial um, common names come about? And so that's where I really started to research into the different names of the plants. It wasn't the intention from the offset. It just sort of organically happened. And then through that, it also organically happened that a lot of those stories that were coming through were around women and women's roles. And some of them were really clear and really straightforward and some of them were a bit more of a tenuous link. But it was just this incredible vessel for a journey of research, which I just found incredibly fascinating. Just fell down the rabbit hole. Exactly. So through that process, you evolved characters effectively. You took individual plants, flowers, and you gave them people's names, which is a bit of a stretch on the face of it, but can you tell us how you came to that and give us some examples of those names and what they meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. And you're not the first to suggest that that was a wee bit of a stretch with some (laughs) of the titles. And for me, it was that journey. And I came to them in different ways. But it would be if I was looking up a plant, I think the Sarah Churchill is a really good example. And so I titled the image Sarah Churchill and the plant was a false Queen Anne's lace. But when I was researching the plant and when I had first taken the image, I thought it was the real Queen Anne's lace. And it wasn't until my mother-in-law you know, informed me that it wasn't. And I was extremely disappointed because it was one of my favourite images. And through that research, I, I sort of was looking into, well, what is this false Queen Anne's lace? And I'd done all of this research around Queen Anne. And one of the things that came up around her was Sarah Churchill, who was the Duchess of Marlborough. And she was an incredibly influential woman, but really behind the scenes. And so she drove Mm. a lot of Queen Anne decisions. She She was power behind the throne, wasn't she? Absolutely. Guided her husband into government. Um, Her and Queen Anne fell out at one point, and she still went on to become one of the richest women in Europe. So it really just you know, struck me that, well, she is kind of like the false Queen Anne. And so that was one of the 
yeah, the directions of how that title came up. And that was actually the first one. That was the first one that came in like that. And that's where I started experimenting with, well, what else exists in this space? And the images were taken first, and then I would start to look into the history. So I wasn't selecting plants based on their history. I was selecting the plants and then looking into what sort right. of sat behind them. Um, another one, and probably my second favourite image, is the Lucy Cranwell, which is the Corfi. Uh, it's a Corfi image and it has lots of pollen blown out all over a black background. And if I can perhaps, uh, for, for the purposes of listeners, explain what this picture looks like. It's a, an absolutely pure bright ko-fi yellow flower against a dense midnight black background that looks as if the flower has been sat upon a bed of black velvet and photographed perfectly just like that. We'll get on to the fact that that's absolutely not what happened in a moment, (laughs) but that is what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And so the image when I was taking it, the the pollen fell out of the plant as a a byproduct of what I was doing. And then when I saw the results of that digitally, I just thought, wow, the pollen is actually really the star of the show. And so I was researching just around the Corfi and around pollen and came across Lucy Cranwell, who was a New Zealand botanist. And she was New Zealand's first female curator at the Auckland Museum as well. And her fieldwork was some of the most extensive done by females even to date in botany in New Zealand and she actually went on to become an expert in pollen and is really internationally recognised for that work so again it just all seemed to fit for me with this sort of native corfi plant and then the pollen involved in there as well. So in this one exhibition effectively what you have is this extraordinary synthesis of uh, botany, history and, and feminism in a sense. Yeah, and I think it sort of all came together that way without me really realising that's what it was doing, which is probably one of the things I love the most about that project, is it really was a personal journey of all of those things coming together. Um, at the outset with wanting to really um, you know, pay homage to the garden and, and my mother-in-law in general. Um, and so, yeah, the way that that all came together. It just evolved. Absolutely. Into something very beautiful. Yeah. You not only have you had this project that has that amazing organic sort of history to it, but you've also evolved in a way to away from traditional photography into what I think you referred to as no lens photography, because in fact, in this case, you've used not a camera, but a garden variety, if you'll excuse the pun, scanner. Did that start out as your intention? No, no, definitely not. So when I took this study on, I was really excited about the idea of going on a more um, botanical specimen-based journey. I was really inspired by Mary Delaney. I was even wanting to do it in the dark room. I wanted to look into the concept of Degura types. I was really going in a completely different direction. And then lockdown happened. And I was trying to pivot and try to find some things that were still sitting within the theme that I was enjoying. And somehow I found my way to making these kind of three-dimensional cut out images and I needed to show my supervisors what they looked like in lockdown so I scanned them and sent them through and as soon as I scanned them the resolution and the detail and that really interesting scanning something three-dimensional in, in, a, in a 
piece of equipment that's designed for a two-dimensional file document mm. just yielded these incredible results. And pretty much immediately I went, look, this is somewhat something that I want to experiment with. And yeah, it wasn't a fancy scanner. It was your $40 Harvey Norman flatbed scanner. And wow, yeah, just really evolved. So did you need to lose some of your technical training, loosen up your thinking a bit, in order to be comfortable with exploring that somewhat unconventional medium? A huge <laughs> amount. Yeah, I really did. And it was very confronting for me. Um, I mean, I was studying as a student and I was also being supervised by colleagues. And so it was really confronting to take things like those technical skills that I really held as extremely important and sort of a skill that I had and throw them out the window and really delve into that experimentation. And I was incredibly lucky because my supervisors were really patient and understood that that was happening. And they challenged me to continue to send that work through. Mm. But I did. It was really difficult. And I actually think moving to the scanner helped that because it took away a lot of that ability to use technical settings. And so... Yeah, again, organically by default, I couldn't use those things that I relied on hugely in the past. How does your very technical husband, photographer husband, (laughs) feel about all this messing around with the technicalities? Well, the first thing that he did was help me sit down and pull a scanner apart and try to figure out how one works. Now, he could probably tell you I still don't know. So, (laughs) (laughs) and so no, he was extremely supportive and we've always worked in really different ways, so... So when you were actually, you know, you've talked about pulling the scanner apart and I know that there was quite a lot of experimentation involved. Can you tell us a wee bit more about what that looked like in terms of, essentially photography is playing with light, a lot of it, isn't it? So so how did you manage that process? Yeah, absolutely. So the first few scans that I was doing, by default, I had to have the scanner lid open because I was putting three-dimensional items onto the scanner plate and I didn't want to flatten them. And so I was getting these sort of murky, grey, white backgrounds. They were quite interesting, but I really wanted to go back to that Delaney-style specimen, 17th century, really dark black background. And it was just through experimentation that I thought, well, I'm getting this weird ambient light. What if I just switch off the room light and make it entirely black in this room? What will that give me? And that was where those Mm. really inky Mm. black backgrounds came in. Yeah, Photography by another name. Yeah, And the end result really are pictures with a sort of ethereal quality. It's not really clear what they are. Are they photographs? Are they paintings? And I suppose if we're asking the question, is this a photograph, did it also lead to the question, well, what is photography? Yeah, it absolutely did. And again, if I I don't know that I would have gone in that direction or had the confidence to go in that direction if it hadn't come out of lockdown. And it, it did pose that question of, well, what is photography? And I think one of the most important things for me was that fundamentally it wasn't about the scanner as a piece of equipment. The scanner for me didn't have you know, the purpose or or meaning because it was a scanner, but it gave me the results that I wanted to achieve and I couldn't have achieved those with a camera. And that's where I sort of went, well, yes, actually, this is photography. It's got a sort of slightly number eight wire kind of feel to it, hasn't it? Very much Which is pretty cool as well. (laughs) You've now started a new project that's definitely not photography, a Masters of Professional Practice. Tell us a wee bit about that. Yeah, I have. This is a really important project to me. So it's Masters of Professional Practice through Capable NZ, and my focus for that is on how we can better support 
non-identifying or disconnected Māori learners in tertiary education. I think it can often be quite an invisible space. It's a really personal journey for me. It's one that I have spent years in my own education journey going through. And uh, that's, yeah, that's the direction. I'm sort of, I'm about a quarter of the way through. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Well done. And of course, in the meantime, more immediately, we've got sight coming up very soon. Uh, for listeners, that is the uh, Targo Polytechnic Teipukenga uh, graduate art show that takes place every year in November around this time of year. Tell us about that, Alicia. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other roles that I have at the moment is that I'm um, also acting head of programs for the Bachelor of Visual Arts. And that's been a really exciting thing where I've been able to be more involved in sight than I have been in the past. I've obviously exhibited in sight myself, so being on both sides of that is really and exciting. Some of us in, that ro- in this room may have bought some of your Sarah Churchills, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> and so look, it's just an amazing uh, school-wide for graduating students um, exhibition, and the whole school gets emptied out and turned into an exhibition space full of uh, student work, um, and it's just a really amazing collaboration incredible experience and just a, just a perfect way to celebrate the, the new wave, the next wave of emerging artists. And it's also a testament to the staff as well. It it's really incredible. is. And look, if there are listeners who have not been to site before on my, our behalf and on Alicia's behalf and on the art school's behalf, absolutely encourage you to get down there and see it because it really is just gobsmacking. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Opening on the 17th, 17th of November. So there's the plug. Get down there. <laughs> And Alicia, we look forward to what your next images might be. I understand that you're wanting to experiment with Tussie Mussie. So for listeners um, who don't know what that is, you can look it up and look forward to seeing uh, Alicia's photographs of those in due course. In the meantime, we wish you all the very best with your Masters and we thank you for being on Sightlines. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again next month for another dive into the visual arts in Dunedin. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like to join the Society, you can also find a form on our website or join at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery reception. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer and DPAG Society President Jonathan Quayolf. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.